We have been focusing now for several weeks on the mission of God as revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things I tried to do in this series of lessons, especially on the gospel, is to focus that the, the gospel has three components to it. There's the message of the gospel, and as I have mentioned over and over, if you want to define the gospel in one word, it is Jesus. The word gospel simply means good news, and the good news that the world needs to hear today is Jesus. Now, it expands from there to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, doing for us for what we, that which we could not do for ourselves, and then the establishment of his kingdom. And, and here we are gathered as the people of God today, as Jesus is bringing all enemies back under his feet, and he'll complete that task when he comes back. Now, we followed that up with how do we respond to the gospel? In fact, one of the words that you find in the New Testament is this word, obey the gospel. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it over in 2 Thessalonians. How that when you hear the gospel, you have to respond to it. And you can choose to reject it or you can choose to obey it. And we talked about how you obey it. And you have faith, you have repentance, you have this declaration of your loyalty to Jesus. And then we spent two weeks looking at the subject of immersion and the role that what we sometimes call baptism, the Greek word simply means immersion, the role that plays in our coming to be a child of God. And then last week, Brian Shepherd began talking about the blessings of obeying the gospel. And he focused in particular on the blessing of forgiveness. And what a wonderful job as he had these big old records up here. And he asked the question, what record, what playlist is playing in your mind? Is it one that has not been affected by the forgiveness you have in God, of where you hold grudges, you hold anger, you, you don't forgive people? Or do you play a playlist that says, because God has granted me forgiveness, I now need to grant other people forgiveness, which, by the way, becomes a tremendous blessing on all of our lives. I mean, when we quit, as he had that, I walked in and there was suitcases up on the, on the podium. And then I thought, did my key unlock my door this morning? I was beginning to think the elders were sending me a message, but it was Brian. Brian, thank you for scaring me briefly. You know, sometimes preachers, listen, I have known of preachers being dismissed on Sunday morning. That's never a good thing, Keith. I knew one preacher got dismissed before he got up to preach. That's not smart on the part of the elders, as you can imagine. But anyway, beautiful lesson last week on forgiveness. Today we continue with our Acts 2.38 text with a second blessing. And by the way, let me just say, it's a blessing that unfortunately, if you were raised in churches of Christ years ago, I'm in my early 60s now, and so I remember what it was like to be raised in the church in the 60s and, and the 70s. And as I oftentimes tell people, we quoted Acts 2.38 a lot, but we stopped right here. We didn't complete the text. And it's this next blessing that we really struggled with, which notice, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 39 and he says, because the promise... And I want you to remember that word promise because it has to do with this gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to it here in a few moments. But the promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone God calls 
has access to this wonderful promise called the Holy Spirit. Now, what happened to us? And what happened to us is back in the 60s and 70s, and, and I know if you're younger than that, you were born in you know, the 80s and 90s, you can't relate to this. But back in the 60s and 70s, there was a movement in the United States called Pentecostalism. And Pentecostalism was moving not only in Pentecostal churches, but in a lot of other different faith fellowships. And, and so you had churches, even churches of Christ, where you had people who believed that the uh, kind of these extraordinary gifts of the first century were still available for Christians. And so people were wanting to prophesy and to heal and to speak in tongues. That was one of the big ones. And some of us remember those controversies. Churches here in Middle Tennessee went through those controversies. I remember my home church in Mississippi having a, a man to come there and began to teach that, hey, uh, let's speak in tongues. We need to be speaking in tongues. And so Pentecostalism began to have its effects upon churches of Christ, and we did what I oftentimes do. When I have something that I'm uncomfortable with, I react to the other extreme. And we reacted to the other extreme. We just almost pull the Holy Spirit out of the lives of Christians. John Micah and I, and I have had this discussion because John thinks it goes even back into the 1800s, and I agree with him. And that one of the problems we have had in Churches of Christ is we put so much emphasis on the rational side of our faith that the spiritual side of our faith sometimes suffers. And, and I love the word that John Micah picked up. He said, you know, our faith is oftentimes anemic. Just like blood becomes anemic to someone physically, our de-emphasis of the Spirit has made us anemic spiritually. Now, gratefully, in the last 30 to 40 years, we've rediscovered the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is the gift of the Holy Spirit so important? I mean, why, why is this so significant in Scripture? And to understand that, you need to go back to the Old Testament. You go back to Genesis 1, and you see the Holy Spirit there as creation begins. Now, again, we, we talk about the Holy Spirit in, in the sense of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the members of what we call the Trinity. Now, we have to be real careful on, on talking about the nature of God. You know, we, we know that God is one. We also know that God manifests himself as three. And trying to figure that out, you just well as to give up on it. You know, I had an old brother years ago who told me, he said, Les, it's a mystery that you have to accept. And, and I have appreciated that word of advice all of those years ago. But we see this member of the Godhead in the very beginning hovering over the waters, active in the creation process. And all you have to do is just kind of walk through the Old Testament. And you'll see the Holy Spirit doing a lot of things even before the New Testament. You've, you've got the Holy Spirit active in creation. He's active in new creation after the flood takes place. He, he manifests God's presence in the world. You see the Holy Spirit in various ways, uh, you know, proving the existence of God. He's active in sanctification. A fancy word simply means in making us holy, which is going to become very important in the New Covenant. He's active in gifting people, empowering people, helping people to do things that ordinarily they could not do. You see this a lot in the Pentateuch with the building of the tabernacle. He's active in revelation. The prophets always spoke through the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one that gave them the words to speak. And so you have this revelatory guidance approach. And then he indwelt certain people. Prophets, priests, kings. One of the great stories of the Old Testament is when the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, changes him. And then Saul, because of rebellion, has the Holy Spirit removed from him. Holy Spirit comes upon David. And when David sinned with Bathsheba in that beautiful psalm, David pleads with God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So you have this gifting of the Holy Spirit among a few in the Old Testament. But it's what God said of the future that is the most important. And I want you to notice, in particular, some words here. This is from Isaiah, one of the earliest pronouncements of the coming of the Spirit. I'll pour water out on thirsty land, streams on dry ground. He's using physical illustrations here to talk about what he's going to do spiritually. And then look at what he says. And I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. A time is coming when I'm going to pour out. Got this image of God up in heaven. And he's fixing to pour out his Spirit upon his people. Joel picks up on that in Joel chapter 2. We don't know when Joel prophesied, early, late, we struggle with that. But he says, and afterwards, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people. He goes on to describe that, and then notice verse 29. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out. Now, again, focus on that word, pour out. That's going to become a word that's used in in Acts chapter 2, as God pours out his spirit, and his people are immersed in that spirit. Those two are synonymous with one another. Now, why? Why does God need to give us his spirit? And this is why it's so important that we come to a correct understanding of the working of the spirit. Otherwise, we become spiritually anemic. Watch what the Hebrew writer says in response to this, why is the gift, the promise, the pouring out the Spirit so important? Hebrew writer in Hebrews 8 begins to talk about the difference between the Old Covenant, what we call our Old Testament, and the New Covenant, what we call the New Testament. Old Testament made with Israel, New Testament, New Covenant made with all of God's people. Okay? Two different covenants. Look at what he says about the first one. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant... No place would have been sought for another. There was something fundamentally wrong about the law of Moses, the Torah, that covenant that God established, the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the the laws that God gave. There was something fundamentally at fault with it. Now, if you read the Old Testament, through the Old Testament, it's not that the laws are wrong. The law of God's perfect, reviving the soul. It's not the law itself. Look at what the Hebrew writer says. But God found fault with the people. You see, the problem with law is that you and I are terrible at keeping it. Terrible. I mean, I I challenge any of you, and I know this is a very insignificant illustration. I challenge any of you to drive today and not violate the law somewhere. Somewhere. In other words, if the speed limit is 35, you don't go over 35. That's a violation of the law. And I guarantee you, if you come down the hill on Rockland right over here, you violated it this morning. I did. 
unless you hit the brake and ride the brake all the way down, you're going to go over 35 miles an hour. Or you come to a stop sign and you don't stop. You just roll right on through it. I got pulled over for that one one time years ago. Lady, lady police officer said, did you notice you rolled through that stop sign? I said, no, ma'am, I didn't. She said, well, you did. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, I am too, you know. You know how that goes. We don't keep law well. We never have. And so God said, I've got to fix this problem. Watch how he fixes it. This is what's so fascinating. He goes on in, in, in Hebrews 8, and he says, The days are coming, quoting from Jeremiah, declares the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to replace this first covenant with a new covenant. And look at what's significant about it. He said it's not going to be like the first one. So how is it different? I mean, did God go, I tell you what, I, I, I simply won't make lying a sin anymore. That way you don't have to struggle with that one. No. I mean, Basic morality stays the same. But look at the ending down here. He says, here's how I'm going to change the covenant. I'm going to put my laws in their minds, and I'm going to write them on their hearts. Now you go, wait a minute. How is this different from the first covenant? There's going to be something involved in this second covenant that changes the way you and I respond to God's law, God's word. And Ezekiel tells us how it works. Look at Ezekiel. I'm going to give them a new heart. That's how I'm going to put my law in their heart. I'm going to give them a new heart and a new spirit in you. Not the spirit of rebellion, but a, a, a spirit that's conscientious. A spirit that cares. Watch what he then says. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. We, we can become hard-hearted at times. He says, I'm going to take that away, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. Highlight it, underline it, store it, whatever you need to do in your Bibles. I'm going to put my spirit, and notice that word there, in. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Now, Ezekiel, why is that important? What, what, what's going on here? Look at why it's important. He says, and I will put my spirit in you, this is down at the bottom, and move you. I'm going to move you. I'm going to move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. I'm going to motivate you. I'm going to move you. I'm going to help you. In other words, God recognizing you need help and I'm going to give you help. That's why when you turn to the New Testament, you have this wonderful promise of this coming spirit. This is John the Baptist in his preaching. I immerse you with water, but he'll immerse you, he'll immerse you with the Holy Spirit. Now, water immersion is important. We talked about it for two weeks. But along with water immersion comes an immersion in the Spirit of God. And Jesus tells us why that's important on the night of his betrayal. He's with his apostles and look at what he says. Watch the language. And I will ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper. Here's all the different translations. Comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, standby. The Greek word is paraclete, and I love this word. I'm going to give you another paraclete. Para means alongside of. Clete comes from kleo, which means to call. 
And so you call someone alongside of you. I go to the gym. I sign up at Planet Fitness. I go, I need to get in, in, in good shape. And the lady looks at me and says, you need help. I say, yeah, I do. She said, we have, we have people here free of charge, and they'll come in and they'll work with you. Now, here's what you have to understand. When these assistants, these exercise trainers come in, they don't do the lifting for you. They don't get on the bicycle and go, now, you know, let me show you how this is done. Oh, let me get on the treadmill for you. They don't do it for you. They're simply beside you, helping you understand what you need to do. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you got to change your diet. Well, I mean, this is the way I've eaten all my life. I'm going I'm to set you up with a nutritionist. The nutritionist doesn't eat the food for us. The nutritionist comes alongside of us and helps us. And by the way, you can... Just You can think of all kinds of illustrations. The football team has a coach. The coach comes along. He doesn't get in the game and play it. He comes along the, the players and teaches them how to do it. Helps them to know how to do it. And the same is true of lawyers. And, and just the list goes on and on and on. And so he says, I'm going to send you a helper who's going to come alongside of you. And then notice, he's going to show the world the truth about sin. He'll show the world about being right with God. He's going to show the world what it's like to be guilty. He's going to help you understand how sin affects your life. And then what you can do to overcome it. And then watch this. And so I'm going to ask you, or ask the Father, he's going to send you this advocate, this helper, this paraclete. He's the spirit of truth. And then notice the text that John Micah read a few moments ago at the very end. But you know him, for he lives with you. The apostles had already been working in the power of the spirit. But there's a difference with the spirit being beside us or along with us and being in us. A level of work, of, of, of connection is going to take place that's far deeper than anything anyone had ever experienced. And that's why Jesus said he's going to be in you. We're going to look at that more here in just a moment. And so watch what Jesus does. Acts 1, he's getting ready to ascend. He calls the apostles together and he says, I need you to wait in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem, but notice, but wait for the gift my father promised. Remember that word promise from Acts 2.39? For the promise is for you. Here's Jesus talking about that promise. And what is the promise? He said, you heard me speak about it. John baptized with water. But in a few days, you're going to be baptized. You're going to be immersed. God's going to pour out his spirit on you. I grew up with a belief that the baptism of the spirit was something that only the apostles and the household of Cornelius received. Brothers and sisters, you can't substantiate that in the text. It will not work. What happens in the text is the word immerse and pour out are synonymous. And so the pouring out of the Spirit of God is upon all flesh. All of God's people receive it. So all of us are immersed into, into the body of Christ through both water and the Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. This is from the TLV, the Jewish Messianic Jewish translation. For in one ruach, notice that phrase there, in... One Ruach, one Spirit. Ruach is the Old Testament word for spirit. For in one Spirit, we were all immersed into the one body. 
So when you were baptized, you were immersed in water, and you are also immersed in the Spirit. One physical, one spiritual. Spirit took up residence in you and began to work in your life. Now, here's where it gets fun. So what's the Spirit doing in our life? What's He trying to accomplish? And boy, it comes down to one... Here's one passage that I think summarizes beautifully. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is this. It's love. Now, he's going to go on to talk about a lot of other characteristics. But it begins with the most important one of all. The Spirit of God wants to teach you and me how to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love one another In fact, Jesus says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. I mean, not like you love yourself, even a higher love as Jesus loved us. And then the other characteristics will fall in place. And so the Spirit's trying to restore us, very simply put, into Christ-likeness or God-likeness. And so the Spirit, when I was baptized, when I was 11 years old, whether I realized it or not, the Spirit took up resonance in Les Chapman. And began to work. Now here was the problem, still is the problem for a lot of us. And that the Holy Spirit is not capable of doing certain things. Number one on that list is that the Holy Spirit is limited by your willingness to give the Spirit space to work. The Spirit doesn't come in and take over. He is not a... This old Les Chapman phrase, he's not a takeoverer. Did you hear that right? Takeoverer. He is a helper. Two very different things. He doesn't come in our lives, take control of us, and make us do things that we don't know that we're doing. The Spirit takes up residence as a helper, as that person who's there with us, not to do the work for us, but to assist us, empower us, help us do it. And so we've got to be people who give the Holy Spirit space. 1950, outside of Ripley, Mississippi, my grandparents finally got electricity. Now, I know for many of you raised here in Nashville, y'all had electricity way back. It took us quite a time to get to North Mississippi. And, and so electricity came to my grandparents' house, 1950. My dad was a senior in high school. Uh, I was just a gleam in his eye, I guess. Probably not even that. But anyway, electricity came. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The electrician finished wiring their house, said to my granddad, Mr. Chapman, you now have electricity. Only problem is, grandmother and granddaddy didn't have anything that used electricity in the entire house. Nothing. There were no electric heaters. There were no washing machines. There were no, you know, electric uh, water heaters. There, 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 there was no fans. There was there wasn't even a, a plug-in radio. Now, they had battery-powered radios. They'd listen to the Grand Ole Opry at night, but they didn't have radios, okay? Televisions weren't even in existence in North Mississippi at that time. And so here's my grandparents with electricity. They've got all this power inside their house and no way to use it. So my granddad took out a nickel, gave it to my uncle, said, run over to the store and buy a light bulb. 
And so my uncle took off barefooted ran across, you know, about a mile of, uh, over the hills and through the valleys to the general store to get a light bulb so that they could have access to electricity. That's the way a lot of us are. We have access to the most powerful force in the universe, the Spirit of God. But we don't have the tools to access it. Watch what Paul says. I want you to see this. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him, talking about God, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. How much can you imagine doing for God? How much would, would you like to ask God to do in your life? I want you to think about that. And then notice what he says. According to his power, his power at work in us, we're wired to do astonishing things. The problem is, we don't get that power, give that power access. Look at what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said. Boy, I love this. Well, I don't because it describes me too much. You do not have primarily because you don't ask God. That's why you don't accomplish more. You don't dream. You don't, you don't envision. You don't imagine what God could do. So you don't ask God to do great things. And guess what? If you don't ask you don't get. And then look at the other description of me. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Does that not just describe American Christianity? I mean, God, we want you to do amazing things as long as we can enjoy it. As long as it makes us happy. I mean, God, don't ask us to sacrifice. Don't ask us to step out in faith. Don't. I mean, you just fill in the blank. And so here's James saying the reason Paul said what he said, that, that, boy, here's all this power, but the reason you don't see it is because you don't ask. And then if you do ask, you ask with the wrong motives. Stephen, in preaching to the Sanhedrin, said, you guys keep the Holy Spirit at arm's length. That's the way you live your lives. You resist Him. He wants to work in your life, and you got your hand up like some kind of running back saying, no, you're not going to get close to me. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, you quench him. Do not quench. Literally, do not put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. And boy, how many times have we done that? And by the way, not only do I put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in my life by doing the very things Brian talked about last week, playing those old recordings that don't help anything, I also put out fire in other people's lives. And I suspect you've done that as well. Let somebody get excited about Jesus. Oh, don't get that excited about Jesus. You know, and so we quench the Spirit's fire. Again, doing things that don't allow the Spirit to work. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is one of those amazing chapters. Uh, the leadership spent probably a year working through Philippians 2. Still, I resonate with that chapter so much. This is from the Amplified Bible. But it calls upon us to work out our salvation. That's the first thing Paul says, is listen, you've got to work out, and I love the way down here in the yellow he says that. He says, listen, work out your salvation, that is, cultivate it, bring it to full effect, actively pursue spiritual maturity. In other words, you've got to do your part. You've got to create the avenues by which God can work in your life. And just like someone who goes to the doctor and says, Doc, I want to get healthy. What do I do? And the doctor says, well, here's what you do. You need to start eating differently. 
You need to start resting properly. You need to start exercising more. You need to lose weight. I mean, y'all know all the things the doctors say. The same thing is true spiritually. I mean, if you want to know how do I give access to the Spirit to work in my life, then spend time in His Word. Spend time on your knees praying. Spend time fasting. Boy, there's a concept, right? I mean, saying I'm going to avoid food so that I can focus on spiritual food, which is what God wants. Spend time at church worshiping, worshiping privately, serving others. These are all avenues that allow God's Spirit to say, Now, I can work in you. I mean, you start serving others and watch what I do through that to plant seed in people's lives. You start worshiping passionately and watch what happens when people around you see you worshiping passionately and they begin to worship more passionately. I mean, you get into God's Word and watch what happens when light bulbs start coming on as you go, oh, that's what you've been trying to teach me that I need to hear. Yes. That's why Sunday school is so important. Sunday school is not just simply another job you got to do at church. Sunday school is about you learning more about what God is doing in your life and turning on lights in your life for you to live for Him more and better than you ever have in the past. And then notice what the promise is. Here, here's Paul. Same thing that he said in Ephesians. For it is God, when you start doing that, who works in you. The Holy Spirit is there. He's working in you. He's working in your mind. He's working through your actions. He's empowering you with courage. I mean, all at once, you're able to do things you never even thought imaginable. Ephesians chapter 3. Because you've asked God, and He has responded. The second thing that we need to realize is that the Holy Spirit will not force you to become more Christ-like against your will. I mean, if you're hanging on to sin, if you've got certain things in your life, you're like, God, you're not allowed in that room. You're not allowed in this part of my life. I'm going to hang on to this bitterness. I'm not going to forgive this brother over here. I mean, if you're hanging on to things, the Holy Spirit will not force you against your will. That's not the way the Spirit works. I mean, the, the trainer at the gym doesn't come over and say, okay, you're fixing to start riding that bicycle or else. I mean, he doesn't force you to ride the bicycle or to walk the treadmill, and neither does the Holy Spirit of God. And so what ends up happening? We end up thwarting the sanctifying work of the Spirit you see in the yellow. I mean, the Spirit is there trying with everything he's got to make you more like Christ, but he cannot do that which you don't allow him to do. And the end result is we forget that this body of ours is this temple and we don't use it appropriately. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, the problem is you've got some of the Corinthians who are still involved in all things temple prostitution. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. You can't take your body that's been purchased at a price and use it for something immoral like that because it now belongs to God. God's living in it through His Spirit. And if we would remember that, it would change everything we do every day. You see, if I remember that God's Spirit is in me, then those people that frustrate me so much in the way they drive, 
And some of y'all are guilty of it. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. But I'm being very serious in that. You know, have you ever thought about, instead of yelling at the person in front of you, praying for them? Have you ever thought about the person who's your neighbor who's giving you problems of trying to serve them? One of my favorite stories is a story at Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry down in South Nashville. They, they bring prisoners out of the big prisons, River Bend, for instance, and they go there as a halfway house. The people in the neighborhood, some of them didn't want them. Back behind where they built their first halfway house was a lady, and the lady let them know, I don't like y'all being here. And so what Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry did is simply encourage the guys who live there, go out and serve your neighbors. And so they started going down to this lady's house and mowing her yard, trimming her hedges, making it look nice. They didn't ask for money. They didn't ask for accolades. They just did it. And over time, she began to go out and thank them and got to know them by name. And the next thing you know, she was, they were visiting with her and she was visiting with them. And it came time that she couldn't live by herself anymore a couple of years ago. And she went to her kids and she says, listen, I, I need to move somewhere else. I want to put my house up on the market. But Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry gets first dibs on it. They need another place for more prisoners to live before they go out in society. And simple acts of kindness opened enormous doors for that ministry. That's what happens when we live with the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. We don't get angry at people. We use those opportunities to serve them. Ephesians chapter 4 is a fascinating text. It's a text where you've got all of these sins. You've got sins before, you've got sins after. And right in the middle, Paul pauses and he says, By the way, you need to realize when you lie, when you steal, when you use foul language, you're grieving the Spirit of God that lives in you. Don't do it. Boy, if I was more aware of the grief I give the Spirit, I suspect I would be more sensitive to doing better than I do. That's why this is so important. The Hebrew writer would say when we sin and we just keep on sinning, we insult the Spirit of grace. We literally insult Him because here the Spirit is there to help us and we don't even want His help. We prefer you not be around. And then finally, this incredible role is in assessor. Perhaps most important of all, Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, he says, in the same way the Spirit helps us, there's that word, help, helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That's why the Spirit is so important in our prayer life. I mean, have you ever just been in a moment where you didn't know what to pray and you just said, God, I don't know what to ask for. You respond as you see best. The Spirit in us takes over that prayer and delivers it to God. And the Spirit is able to do it even without words, with groans that words cannot explain. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul will say, pray in the Spirit as the last act of putting on this armor of faith in Ephesians chapter 6. After you put on all that armor, you know what you do? You pray in the Spirit. You pray through the power of the Spirit saying, God, you live in me through your Spirit. Now, Spirit, take my thoughts and give it to the Father. And He does. 
Jude would say the exact same thing in Jude 1.20. Praying in the Holy Spirit is how you build yourself up. So God gives us this incredible gift called His Spirit. And boy, if we can just come to grasp just a little bit of it. Oh, what God can do through that to make us into the people He wants us to be. If you don't have the presence of God's Spirit in your life because you've never obeyed the gospel, what are you waiting for? Come right now. Let's together we stand and sing.